As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, now's the time with our best offer ever. Sign up today and you'll pay just £1 a month for the next six months, giving you unrivaled insight and analysis of everything Euro 2020 and taking you well into the new Premier League season two. The Athletic is the only place you can read pieces by award-winning writers like Michael Cox, Rafa Honigstein, Amy Lawrence and Daniel Taylor. And when you subscribe, you'll also get ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts from across its audio network. Head to theathletic.com slash totally and become a subscriber today for six quid until the end of the year. That's theathletic.com slash totally. Yes, Jorginho, frosty like a semi-freddo, particularly through in our first semi-final. Spain, with the finishing skills of the nation that's still making the Sagrada Familia, left to wonder what might have been if they had Morata on from the start and then taken him off for the penalties. Wednesday, it's England-Denmark, the land of Hamlet and Hans Christian Andersen, against the land of inflatable plastic unicorns. Whose fairy tale ride will continue? It's totally at the Euros, in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. Happy Italian supporters there queuing on Wembley Way on their way home from that epic semi-final Tuesday evening against Spain. We're here post-game Wednesday morning, of course, for you with Adam Crafton and Daniel Story here with us today. Hello, boys. Hi, James. Evening, James. Evening, indeed. And uh, also live from the temple of football that is Wembley, it's James Horncastle. Ciao, ciao tutti, ciao. There you go. There you go, James. Wow, crikey. What, a, what an emotional evening it must have been 
at Wembley. Italy, not necessarily the the better side, but the better penalty takers. The nation that brought us, uh, well, Pirlo's Penenka and, and the Zaza Shuffle memory this time with that <laughs> magnificent, magnificent bit of cheek from Jorginho. Oh, wow. I had blocked the uh, Zaza uh, shuffle from my mind. Also, the Graziano Pele. I'm gonna, I'm gonna penenka oh. you Neuer as well, and then drag <laughs> it wide back in uh, in 2016. No, it wasn't that like that this time around. Uh, it was, it was a reverse of, of of 2008, when of course the, the this cycle that Spain would go on from 2008 to 2014 really really kick started that penalty from from Sesc, which I'm sure Adam. Uh, we'll know all about, but wow, what a game of, of, of tension! I, again, just like a you go back to the kind of round of sixteen game against Austria, which went to extra time, where Italy were on the ropes in the second half, but then made changes and came back into it. They were on the ropes almost the entire game this time around. Mm. I was I was really impressed by by Spain. I've never seen Pedri and, and Olmo from from close up, but I think what what Luis Enrique did tonight. By not playing a striker from the start, it, it just didn't allow Italy to settle, play their own game, particularly with those two around, Jorginho. And uh, for the most part, they couldn't get out apart from when they could counterattack. And uh, what a counterattack for Chiesa's goal. Uh, just, Absolutely. Uh, that, that, was, that was brilliant. But uh, well, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Chiesa with another terrific goal. Tonight. With plenty of people who have shone for Italy who underperformed uh, I think you you may agree this evening whether it was Verratti or or Barella even as as, as well they were missing Spinazzola who who do you think kind of kept them afloat in this game apart from Spain's finishing <laughs> I think Spain's finishing was it was a big part of it uh, I, I thought Di Lorenzo was was fantastic tonight um, again you know someone who was playing in their what fourth division uh, not so long ago. Uh, I thought he did everything that he he had to, had to do, everything that was asked to him. Of course, Chiesa, uh, a big game player, James. Uh, mm. you know, I mean, scored the winner in the Coppa Italia final, scored those goals in that kind of ill-fated night against Porto in the Champions League when you know Ronaldo jumped, covered his face, and Porto scored from a free kick that went under the wall. So I think those two, and also Donnarumma. The, the, the thing mm. that kind of stunned me was was Italy's attitude going into the penalty shootout. Um, even when Locatelli missed, I mean, beforehand you just saw Donnarumma smiling uh, in in the huddle. Um, uh, he looked confident, and then Chiellini at the coin toss, uh, <laughs> just the most off-putting person uh, I think you could have as as Jordi Alba, just you know, sort of him shouting and smiling and trying to trying to joke around with you. Uh, uh, I, I think those 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 little things that uh, I, I think towards the end of extra time, I thought Chiellini and Bonucci were again magnificent. Every ball that came into the box, they got in the way of somehow. So, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those just really gutsy, determined performances on a night when they were, let's face it, outplayed. Hmm. So the Italy team that had wowed a lot of neutrals over the, certainly through the group stage, not really there tonight. Do you see that returning? For the final, whoever it's against, uh, yeah, because I, I think Italy have got a better midfield than England have, um, or at least a, if, a, mid, if it's a midfield. That, yes, if it is England, exactly. Mm. Um, yeah, Casper Michael uh, thinks otherwise. Um, I think it will be. I, I think it will depend again on on what physical condition they're in. Uh, come come Sunday. Uh, let's not forget that England have only played one game away from home so far in this tournament. They'll be pl- I, I, Wembley tonight sounded like it was a home crowd for Italy more so than Spain. 
it won't be like that on Sunday. And there'll be more fans, I think. Um, so, yeah, we'll we'll have to see. But I, I think, again, the kind of momentum this team has, I, I think they've, they've got two things that are really going for them, James. One is the style of play that we really saw up until tonight, um, which has got them this far. And then the belief that comes from they have suffered against Austria, they have suffered against Spain, and yet they've still come through. And I mm. think that's that's meaningful. Another epic night provided by Italy, who I think they've only won the European Championships once. They should win it on the basis that in 2016, I thought they were the, the best team in terms of the performances that they put up against, again, the two to the two teams they've just faced, Belgium and Spain, on the Conte. And again tonight, the, 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 the games against Belgium and Spain have been magnificent they've been excellent value the italians to to this this competition mm. all right well you've been excellent in your summary of events from from wembley uh, i know you've got a uh, an exciting round up to uh, to type up now for readers of the athletic uh, so uh, thanks very much for being with us and we'll, we'll catch up with you ahead of the final james yes you're listening to the totally football show sponsored by paddy power and part of the athletic podcast network James Horncastle. Well, Adam, Daniel, it it was an adventure uh, that 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 game. Where where do you want to? What what does it leave you with? What what lesson have you learned? Where where have you ended up? Um, I think I'm left predominantly, well, still trapped in this vortex of swagger and vulnerability when it comes to Alvaro Morata, um, who scored, you know, probably one of the goals of the tournament, one of the greatest goals I think I've ever seen him score in terms of. For him to really take a grip of a game and show initiative and instigate a move and get the ball back, I thought it was fantastic. And then he steps up for the penalty and you can just see it in his eyes. I know it's so easy to say it now, but it was such a bad penalty. Morata, it just feels like you know this guy who's had real ups and downs in this tournament he's had death threats earlier in the tournament from his own supporters which is horrible and then he hit back and scored a fantastic goal and finally broke his duck and then he come, gets dropped and then he comes back off the bench and now he's back on the canvas again um, you know, I mean imagine being his wife tonight having to pick him back up um, and pick up the pieces. Um, so, yeah, I'm very sad for Alvaro Morata. Uh, um, and the other person that I just thought was unbelievable was Pedri. I mean, what a player, mm. 18 years old. Um, I saw a stat, he didn't, he didn't give the ball away in, in no. the entire 90, full 90 minutes. Um, stunning, looks like the heir to Iniesta. He, he went a full 90, completing every single pass. Uh, in, in extra time, he missed two. So that was 65 out of 67. Uh, Spain, by the way, in terms of passing, certainly by the end of, I think, extra time, uh, 812 passes to Italy's 299, which tells in some ways the story of how the game was played. Daniel, what did you make of Luis Enrique's decision to go with a beefed-up midfield and a strikerless formation? In some ways it worked, they dominated, but in other ways it didn't because they could do nothing in terms of putting the ball in the net. Yeah, I mean, it did work in terms of Enrique's plan because if you'd have given him those chances at the start of the game versus Italy's chances, he would have he would have snapped your hand off because you know, his basic idea was, I don't think 
Morata or Moreno over 90 minutes will get the better of Benucci or Chiellini. I think we're better kind of having this free-form front three where particularly Danny Almo is sort of dropping deep into the pockets. Ayathabel drifting right. And and I think Italy really did struggle with that. And it, it wasn't just about what they did with the ball. It was also it enabled this really intense press to kind of knock Italy off their game. I think the only the only flip side to that was because players are tired at this stage of the tournament, that press meant that the defensive line had to be pretty high. And in the first half, we saw pretty simple direct balls from to send Emerson through twice. And I don't think Unai Simon is, is a sweeper keeper necessarily. He got himself in, in trouble a couple of times there. But they did, they did dominate the game. As James Horncastle said, they, any other night, Enrico would take that performance. He would have taken those chances. He would have just hoped his side were a little bit more ruthless. And I think even in extra time, because it looked quite obvious from 95 minutes onwards that Italy were kind of sat in. They weren't really trying to counter as much. So I think maybe just that, yeah, that little bit of ruthless. Maybe he does wish he'd started Alvaro Morata and, you know, kind of got that impact in the start of the game, but just on an absolute knife edge. And, and, Main conclusion is I thought it was an absolutely superb match. That it, it, uh, Normally when we watch extra time, we're all waiting for penalties because we think we've watched 120 minutes, we deserve penalties. Actually, for me, it felt the opposite this time. And it was like, it's been such a good game, it almost seems a shame for one side to lose this on penalties. Mm. Although the, the second half of extra time very much was waiting for the spot kicks. Uh, Duncan Alexander pointing out that Alvaro Morata has now overtaken Scotland for all-time goals. At the Euros, so he he'll have that. And also, um, this is my favourite stat that I keep going on about, but it does leave Italy now within a whisker of um, the absolutely magnificent feat of the Eurovision European Championship double. Never been done before, never been a World Cup Eurovision double either, but they are now on the brink. Um, so it will be... Uh, that will be, I suppose, something to take some solace in, perhaps, on Sunday evening. Yeah. Okay, so um, words of solace for, for any Spanish supporting listeners, Daniel? Well, two things. Firstly, um, they played tonight far better than they've played in the rest of the tournament. They turned up in the biggest game and they completely Im- imposed and themselves and implemented the, the, the plan that Enrique came up with. And also, the foremost attacking players on the pitch that started the game were aged 24, 23, 21 and 18, which, um, you know, if, if that is going to be the plan for the future to play this kind of fluid front three with a, uh, a kind of multi-purpose, pretty stellar midfield behind it, it looks good for the future. Um, clearly they came into this tournament with with COVID issues and with a, a back line of Eric Garcia, who's pretty raw and was shown it in the tournament, and Amaric Laporte, who's very new to the Spanish side. So that will take some work. But if they get that right, then, yeah, they're on to something good. I do just wonder if, if, I mean, we don't know yet what the reaction of the Spanish media would be, but I couldn't help watching Eric Garcia in this tournament. I just thought, I wonder if that was Sergio Ramos next to Amaric Laporte. <laughs> whether that would have made a difference. And and there will be sections of particularly, I'm sure, uh, some of the more extreme Spanish media who may focus on that, I suppose. Right. And if it was Sergio Ramos stepping up to take a penalty, say, in the shootout, mm. well. Mm. Indeed. Although he, wow. he might well have been suspended for the semi-finals. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do think you're right, though, Daniel. I mean, the, I mean, the expectations in Spain before the tournament were were pretty low. You know, there wasn't a huge amount of excitement around the squad. Um, there was quite a bit of angst around the fact there was no Real Madrid player. 
um, in it as well. I think they've performed beyond expectations. They, you know, they had a couple of really exciting games. Better team tonight in the semi-final, I thought. You know, watching it as an England fan, tempting fate, looking ahead, I was thinking, I don't want to play against that midfield. I don't want opponents to have that much of a ball when we know England don't really keep the ball that well. So, yeah, I thought, I thought it was really encouraging. And, you know, looking 18 months on at Qatar, you know, I think they will go into that with increasing confidence. And they have good young players coming through. Pau Torres as well in the defence will be mm. another year older and probably at a bigger club as well by then as well. Adam, presumably then watching Italy actually win the penalty shootout, you felt a sense of relief that if England do get through Wednesday night's game, they will be facing a team that probably might be quite happy to leave them bundles of, of time on the ball. Yeah, I, I can't work it out. I mean, at the same time as saying like, you know, I, I would have found it quite agonising to watch England play um, against Spain at Wembley. At the same time, there is just this feeling, isn't there, about this Italian team that they are just so tough to beat, um, so tough to break down. I think if England was to get the first goal against Italy, I'd be very confident that they would win the game. Um, mm. No one's done that to Italy in, in, what, around two years now? 33 wow. matches unbeaten. Yeah. And I, think, I, mean, as what, I think I'm right in saying that it's now only three of the 50 games at this tournament has the team who scored the first goal lost the game. Um, so, I mean, that shows... Which ones were they? So there was the group stage game between Germany and Portugal where Cristiano Ronaldo scored first and Germany won 4-2. Mm-hmm. Then Denmark took the lead against Belgium and Kevin De Bruyne came off the bench and inspired Belgium to win 2-1. And then Spain played against Croatia and they did technically score the own goal, a very dramatic own goal that the, uh, Unai Simon let, let past him, um, but then went on to, uh, to win on penalty kicks. So as far as I can tell, those are the only three games. But I suppose it does underline that huge cliche of how important the first goal is in major games. Right, absolutely. Well, uh, England, of course, Wednesday night will be looking for that all-important first goal against Denmark. So now that we know one side of Sunday's final, let's head over to that game. So, lads, we're back to Wembley for the semi-final of the Euros. Now, look, I'm not sure if you know this, but we've actually been in a very similar scenario before. And uh, no, Gaffer, no, that doesn't ring any bells. <laughs> what, Euro 96? The penalty shootout? No, I think anyone taking a penalty is brave. Mm, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sir Gareth has a chance to exercise his demons as his England take on Denmark in the semis. And with Paddy Power, you can get a free bet if one leg of your four-plus-fold bet builder lets you down. Paddy Power! Pre-match only, max free bet £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Minot's one to five per leg on an exclusive T's and C's apply. 18plus, begambleaware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu.
This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Yes, England against Denmark Wednesday night at Wembley in what is Denmark's first semi-final since famously their run to the title at Euro 92. Extraordinary stuff. 29 years later, England coming into this 4-0 winners over Ukraine in their quarterfinal. Denmark, who saw off Czech Republic 2-1 in Baku after one or two nervous moments there. To get a little bit of an insight on the state of Denmark, let's hear now from Eurosport's Niels Harald. Niels, how are you feeling? I'm feeling excited. Uh, this, is a, this is so special for, for Denmark. Remember, we haven't been to a semi-final since 92. <laughs> so it's, it's, getting into, it's getting into the body now. I, really, I, I can feel the game now. That's good. Nils, people over here bang on about 1966 a lot. Is it the same in Denmark about 92? Does that kind of performance, that team, hang over all Danish sides since in the same way? Yes, but in a good way, because it's the proof that it can be done. For I, I believe for you, it's like a curse. It's, that's been going on for so many years. But here in Denmark, it's, it, can be, it, it shows that it can be done, that it's possible to win this. And a lot of people are taking faith in what happened in, uh, in, in Sweden. Faith and faith also, yeah. Right. Okay. And it's, there's, there's, there's so much storyline behind this team. And obviously for the people involved, Christian Eriksen, above all, it goes way beyond someone's sporting narrative. But given how the tournament started, it's interesting the way that feeling of momentum is, is built behind them. In, in real terms, though, are you surprised that the team has been able to absorb the trauma of that opening game, but also Eriksen's absence so well? Yeah. Uh, yes to both. I'm surprised that they that they rose to the occasion. I mean, the Belgian game, the second game, already had signs that the things were changing, that they were good, playing good, but that they could do this is way beyond anybody's expectations. It's been really, really surprising, but also the result of a very, very competent leadership from Casper Juhlmann, who's been excellent. Every day he's been excellent for the team, but also for the public, gathering the public around the team. Okay. What, what's the latest on Christian Eriksen, by the way? Uh, he's been invited to uh, Wembley, and he's been seen in uh, Tisville, which is a very nice little uh, town at the northern side of uh, of Zealand, of, of uh, uh, and he is uh, enjoying his holiday there. It seems like, and also been invited to the final. No response from him uh, as we're speaking, but uh, I, I believe if Denmark is going to play that game, he's going to be there. Was the second half in Baku a bit of a concern against the Czech Republic, Niels? Yeah, good question. Yeah, it was. And especially the first 10 minutes where we changed formation for a, for a little while. There was uh, a reason to be worried. But also remember, these players have been through a lot. Also physically, it's been very a very tight tournament, playing a lot of games. So uh, And the, in the heat in Baku, it was very obvious that there are limits to these teams. But uh, I believe in Wembley should not be that warm as it was in Azerbaijan. I think that's a safe bet. Um, <laughs> all right, now, Denmark have been to Wembley recently, and you, you know what the score was. Not only that, but in 180 minutes towards the end of last year, England weren't able to score against the Danes. How significant are those two matches from the Nations League, and in particular the 1-0 victory for Denmark at Wembley? Uh, it, it's significant. It's also, like the 92 thing, it's a, it's a 
place you can hang your hat, so to speak. This is this is a game we can build upon before the game against England. And remember, Kasper Schmeichel, he played a blind in that game. And he also played a very, very good FA Cup final in, right. uh, in May. And he did excellent. This is a pitch he likes to play in. And they're actually going to train at Tottenham's training ground for the next couple of days. Uh, let's see how long that lasts. Uh, it's until Wednesday night anyway. But but yeah, we have a, a huge belief because of the two games against England. That was good performances. And it showed that Kasper Juhlmann has something right going with this team. Okay. Equally, no team in their last seven matches in all competitions has managed to score against this England. Can Denmark, how might they do that? <laughs> yeah, I think you have to rely on, uh, on the player and form Kasper Dahlberg, who's very, very good at the moment. But also look into what can we do from Joachim Mele from the left side. You saw his uh, his delivery to Kasper Dahlberg, which was second to none. It was pure class, a world class. And I think, I think, what Kasper Yuma is saying is they are going to attack this game. They're going to try to win this game from attack. So I'm, I'm, I'm expecting them to challenge, mm. but but also be very aware of what you have on the other end because obviously the England, the England front three are very very dangerous. Okay, you think that's what they're going to do? Come out and and, and attack England? Yeah, I think it's the best chance they have. Obviously, it's a semi-final, so you never know. The first twenty minutes might be very careful, but I okay. believe when you get to I, I think this is the quality of the team. They have players who can do things on their own. And I think that's what you need against England at Wembley with only 8,000 Danish spectators on, on the seats. Nils Harold there. Mentioning Kasper Schmeichel, who uh, threw down a little bit of a cheeky soundbite gauntlet on Tuesday when somebody asked him about football coming home and that. Uh, by the way, we had stats earlier on, Adam. Did you see the one that this semi-final between England and Denmark pits together two goalkeepers who both made their senior debut in professional football for Darlington? Remarkable. Amazing. It's got to be the first Euro semi-final you could say that about. Jordan Pickford on loan from Sunderland at the time. Kasper Spichel kicked things off uh, at Darlington on loan from Man City. Incredible. Anyway, England, Daniel. England. Um, what's your biggest concern and what are you most looking forward to? I've kind of reached a sort of weird and surprising, even to myself, kind of zen status about the semi-final in that it, that doesn't necessarily reflect a complacency or a, a surety that England are going to go through, although they, they are deserved favourites, I think. But all the angst seems wasted because the team doesn't seem to feel any of this angst. I think Southgate's greatest achievement is kind of managing to both allow his players to express themselves on and off the pitch, but also managing to shut out the, this kind of noise or any pressure. And they, they just seem to be the kind of best version of themselves on and off the pitch. And for that reason, I'm kind of, I will be very nervous come 7.55 and I'm glad we're not talking then. But now I kind of feel, it doesn't feel to me like England are playing potentially their best chance to get into a final in 55 years hmm. in, you know, less than 24 hours time. It feels, I feel strangely calm about the whole thing. Is that because you feel the team has actually acquitted itself well, that it has actually lived up to its potential and that whatever happens, it's, it's been a good tournament? Yeah, my, my, my fear whenever England go into a tournament is not that they're not going to win it, it's that they're going to disgrace themselves or be disgraced by the reaction to them going out of that tournament. And that's largely reflective of the fact that we haven't been in many situations like this before where we're favourites for a semi-final. 
so yes it, it it reflects that absolutely but it, it goes beyond that it also it, it also speaks of a a kind of calm and you know a team that is genuinely enjoying its football on stages where england teams who i think had better quality than this one um, really didn't yeah didn't enjoy themselves yeah i think the the 2002 squad potentially even the 2006 squad was better than this in terms of personnel you might even argue that the 98 squad was but this that isn't the only way to judge an international team. And and there's an argument that it's completely the wrong way to judge an international team. If you judge it about the kind of connections between players and the connections between manager and players, and and even to an extent, I think, players and and the the wider community of football, I think this team knocks them out of the park because they just seem to have gone about things the right way. And that makes me incredibly proud as an England fan because goodness knows we, we had a long time without it. Danny, I actually don't agree with you on the just on the quality in this squad. I actually think, I mean, the more I think about it, the more I do think, apart from France, England had just about the best squad at the tournament. Um, you know, in terms of when you look at the players that they have on the bench, you know, you're talking about players who would be sold, well, who have been sold this summer for 70 million already. Jack Grealish is going to probably go for 100 million if he goes. Um, you know, one of... Rashford, well, several of Rashford, Foden, Grealish, um, Saka, Mount, you know, it's possible they all don't play um, against Denmark. I, I think there's a massive amount of quality and, you know, someone like Dominic Calvert-Lewin, I think is a fantastic player as well. Um, so I, I get what you mean in terms of like the strength and depth maybe in the defensive parts, but I, I did, I've sort of slowly come to terms with the fact that actually I feel England are performing in line with the quality of the squad. Um which is not something to be understated. That's you know, there's a lot of squads in club and international football that struggle and fail to do that. Um, but I, you know, I do think this is a really special group that can continue to grow together beyond this tournament. This Denmark game and the the, the match last October, which the Danes won at Wembley one 0 it was largely the same groups of players that we're looking at here. But it feels like some alchemy is has occurred within the England squad, certainly, and, and possibly within the Danish side as well. They've reached a semi-final just like England have as well. What, what What's your feeling then about England's chances if they have possibly the best squad in, in the tournament? Are, are they going to breeze this one the same way they did Ukraine, do you think, Adam? No, I don't. Th- I, you don't generally, you don't breeze semi-finals, do you? They are tense occasions. And I think that, you know, the size of the crowd and the home crowd... It might be a blessing. It might be a bit of a curse if things don't start particularly well, because you know it's a huge amount of pressure and expectation um, on England. I think England are a different team to obviously when they played Denmark before. In that, you know, I mean, first of all, Harry Maguire was in a very, very different place then, coming off the back of a few nights in a in a cell in Mykonos, um, and also on the back of um, a really poor start to the season with Man United. They lost six one at home to Tottenham. Um, so I think he's a he's a major difference, but also you know, you've just got a continuity of playing together for a few weeks that that brings that about um, and a home tournament. Um, I'm sort of dodging the question about what this means for England in, in a semi final. My, my my feeling is that England are the better team, and if they can manage the expectations which they've been fantastic at so far in the tournament, then then they should win that game. You know, if, if you were. At my pet, I'm not going to do a combined X1 because it doesn't tend to end well for me. Um, but if you were to do one, then there aren't that many Danish players that you would think would be going into that England side. So I think the expectation in terms of quality is that England 
should win the game. It's a home game for them. Um, but let's see. Okay. Daniel? Yeah, I mean, I broadly agree. I, I, I think I said on, on this podcast before, the tendency with England, because for some reason there seems to be this kind of um, weird attempt to, to pull down everything they do, is that they haven't beaten anyone yet. You know, Germany were poor and Croatia aren't the team they were. And the reality is England still did beat those teams. And if that is true, which I don't believe it is, the same is certainly true of Denmark, who have only, you know, for had... had very obvious extenuating circumstances in their first game and perhaps was also relevant for their second but they have only beaten Russia and um, then Czech Republic you know they weren't particularly good in the second half although they got through and they dominated against Wales but Wales kind of lost their head for the last half hour and I think this is a challenge for Denmark as well I I think they are in the better position in that they, they come in with you know as Niels referred to a real sense of you know what can go wrong from here we're all we're already way in above what we believed we would do which that wherever england get that will never apply to england because we aren't we will never be an underdog it doesn't matter what squad we have we will never be considered an underdog and certainly shouldn't be when we're at home in a semi final so denmark do have that kind of freedom that kind of liberty to play and roll the dice i suppose but that doesn't mean they should be favorites for the game by any means I think the big, one of the things I'm really fascinated about is how, um, and maybe this is just the pure Englishman in me, but I think the way the set pieces go tomorrow night, I think the Danes are good, um, both attacking and defending set pieces. We know it's one of England's big strengths at, at tournaments under Gareth Southgate, but showed it again, you know, had a slow start to the tournament on set pieces, but really came to fruition against Ukraine. I think that's going to be a huge thing um, in, in the semi-final tomorrow. Um and the Danes have had some really interesting routines during this tournament, so it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. It's England's fifth semi-final at a major tournament, not including the Nations League. They've not won any of their last four. England have also played more games at the Euros without reaching the final than any other nation. Crikey. You'll never sing that, champions. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I mean, to, to, to answer your question about, you know, what's the thing you're most looking forward to? I mean, it is... Mm with an international semi-final it's just never the football for me I mean it is not to go all sort of soppy and romantic but it is where you are and who you're with and how you celebrate and the people that you call afterwards and the people that you message I I think that's kind of what it's all about when it comes to international football Um, you know I'm not someone I don't know I'm not someone who in the morning after I necessarily want to read the tactical breakdown of it. I just want, it's all, it's all sort of a bit soppy and about feelings. And um, I'm, I, I, I've got a bit mushy since the quarterfinal. Um, I right. think I probably it was the Guy Mowbray commentary. Possibly. I think I was too downbeat um, last, last time I was on here, sort of really sort of seriously thinking about how Southgate is set up against Germany when actually we just beat in Germany, for God's sake. Right. Um, and that's all quite exciting. Um so now that I've fully bought into the hype, um, I don't want anyone take, sort of knocking me off this wave um, of soppy emotion. Please don't take Adam home. Right. <laughs> okay. We'll see what happens, I guess. Uh, of course, Thursday morning, you can catch up with our thoughts post-game from England-Denmark. We're not done with today's show, though. Uh, very, very shortly, we've got a special on this day anniversary. And to take us there, let's get some odds from our friends at Paddy Power 
and over to producer Ben. Thank you, Jimbo. Carl Monaghan is on the line from Paddy Power. Carl, I've got a bet builder for you. Can you price it up, please? It's England to win, but Denmark to score with two Harry Kane goals and a red card. Well, Ben, this is serious stuff now with Gareth Southgate's three lines. One win away from a place in the Euro 2020 final. Of course, standing in their way is the Denmark side, though, who have been through a lot in this tournament, as we well know, but they have evolved into a very efficient unit scored 10 goals in their last three matches and look very dangerous. England will be making sure not to take this game lightly as we saw back in 1992, listeners, that when the Danes gather a bit of momentum, they can turn into a bit of a monster. England have yet to concede in this year's tournament, but Ben, you've asked to kick the bet builder off with an England win and both teams to score and England win is 4-6 to six, and they are the obvious favourites to beat the Danes after their wins over Germany and Ukraine in the knockout stages. But the Danes have been scoring goals for fun, like I said, in their last three games. They've scored 10. Both teams to score could easily click, and both teams to score in this one is 6-5. to five. So That gets the bet builder off to a great start. You've asked for a Harry Kane brace. Well, Harry Kane to score two or more is a big price at 11-2. to two. And, of course, he's a different beast now from the one that was in the group stages after three goals in his last two games, and he's now eyeing the tournament record of five goals currently held by COR7 and Patrick Schick. So highly likely that uh, once Kane catches fire, that he'd be banging in the goals, and we price him up at 11-2, to two, and he slots nicely into our bet builder, Ben. And uh, finally, you've asked for a red card in the game, to be fair. Of course, both sides have pretty good disciplinary records in the tournament so far. A handful of cautions, but no reds between them. But uh, Harry Maguire, he got sent off back in October on England duty against Denmark. Yes, what are the odds of lightning striking twice? So a red card in the match is 4-1. to one. It completes the bet builder. The total price is 83-1. to one. The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Find a bookie who loves you right back as much as Gareth loves right backs. Place a four-plus-fold bet builder on any football match and get money back as a free bet if one leg lets you down. Check paddypower.com for more details. £10 max free bet. T's and C's apply. 80plusbgambleaware.org. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, host of The England Show, brought to you daily throughout Euro 2020. I'll be joined by writers from The Athletic and special guests to bring you unrivaled coverage dedicated to the England team this summer. So for expert insight into Southgate's squad and post-game reaction to all the games, search for The England Show wherever you get your podcasts or via The Athletic app. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Sign up, listener, for a subscription with The Athletic for £1 a month for your first six months. An incredible deal which offers you unrivaled coverage of Euro 2020, all the podcasts ad-free, all the articles, including ooh, Nemanja Vidic doing an analysis of what makes England's defence work so very well. Also, Oli Kay has written a brilliant piece on the former Maori lawyer who's been working as England's performance coach, bringing that sense of togetherness that Daniel referenced to the England squad, or as Oli describes it, whack-a-papa, which, you know, is a sense of belonging within a tribe. There you go. Head to theathletic.com slash totally and feel that whack-a-papa as you join our club for £1 a month for your first six months. Listeners, you probably spotted it's 7th of July. I mean, it might be after the 7th of July, but let's say that it's the 7th of July. And that enables me to say to you, on this day in 1982, do you know what happened, Daniel Story? No, I don't. Is it something to do with uh, Paolo Rossi? No. No, it didn't. No, no, it's nothing to do with the Euros either, because you know, by now, most years, the Euros have, have finished. No, Sir Bobby Robson was appointed England manager. 7th of July, 1982, he's appointed England manager. Curiously, his last game as England manager was also on the 7th of July. That was in 1990. It was the third force playoff defeat to Italy. Uh, just while we're on the subject of curious coincidences, so Bobby's first game as England manager was against? Denmark. Yes, it was. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It this finished 2-2. Really I mean, I've literally just finished <laughs> writing the official England history and therefore blocked all of it out of my mind, which is good. <laughs> so Adam is getting these right, which is good. But Daniel, surely you know the score if you've done the history. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Sure I do. But it was 2-2, as, as you were about to say, uh, Daniel. When's the book coming out? September, October. Uh, it's just with the FA, I've done the unofficial England history, which is kind of a coffee table book with the best parts of the book are the brilliant images in it. Um, I mean that very seriously. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a kind of potted history and it goes through decade by decade and it's the, the men's and the women's team. And then there's kind of pull out profiles of all of the runners and riders and important people. Excellent. Uh, so Bobby, who of course took us to that semi-final of Italia 90 against uh, West Germany and is a manager, I think, who has a very special place in a lot of supporters' hearts. Would, would you care to try and sum up why it is that he resonates so much? Um, because he was a man who I think ostensibly uh, had to, through no choice of his own necessarily take England through probably the hardest decade of of English football uh, in the the hardest position in English football uh, and did so with slings and arrows being almost continually fired in his direction and did so not just with a grace but without ever losing an iota of the kind of good humour and generosity and kindness which pretty much defined his whole life. Um, mm. He is, you know, I, th- I think he would be fair to call him the grandfather of English football. He wasn't necessarily around for England's dawn, but in, in terms of our first games, but he certainly runs like a kind of iota through English football from the fifties onwards, and yeah, will be forever remembered, not just in the northeast, I think, but certainly amongst all England supporters. Mm. 
would it be wrong to 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 wonder whether Gareth Southgate, our current manager, will ever be seen? Not necessarily in terms of having to deal with the difficulties that, that Sir Bobby faced, but in terms of the kind of warmth and humanity which he brings to the the role, is that a wildly erratic no, kind of comparison? No, I, I think they're probably I think they're probably sim- similar people. Uh, I I just think that Southgate now lives in an age where it's impossible to be universally popular because there will always be people intent on bringing him down without getting too political about things. I, d- I don't think it's possible to, to be that anymore. You you would struggle to find anyone that said a bad word about Bobby Robson. I don't think you'd struggle to find people say a bad word about Gareth Southgate, but that reflects on them rather than him. But do, do you think, do you think maybe this is going too, too, uh, too broad, but do you think that's just part of living in the present? You know, if you'd have had this conversation about Bobby Robson in 1980, 1985, 1986, you'd probably have found people that would... You know, would have said said things. It was um, I saw a poll the other day about the sort of favorability ratings of Martin Luther King in the nineteen sixties compared to sort of the modern day, um, and it had right. gone from like thirty three percent at the peak of his what we you know now consider the peak of his fame in the mid sixties um, to now obviously through the roof um, in the present day. Um, I do wonder if there is an element of just you maybe aren't always appreciated until until you're no longer here uh, for yeah, long, and, unfortunately. And, and tragically, obviously, Bobby did die at a, not at a young age, but at a time in a very sudden way, having battled cancer sort of four or five times and left the legacy of, of his foundation in terms of helping, you know, helping other sufferers of cancer. Uh I don't think my my honest answer is I don't think we need to compare them because I think they they are two both very decent men that can stand on their own two feet to do that. Right. Um, I agree. I potentially agree. If if Southgate takes England to a final or even wins the final, then he's certainly going to have his, uh, you know, he's certainly going to be elevated onto a plane that he could not have foreseen when Sam Allardyce asked for a pint of wine. Let's you know, <laughs> there's a remarkable story of how that has happened, and I don't think Southgate would have ever you know, ever claimed to have planned it this way or thought it would happen this quickly. But, you know, good on him for that. Mm. Well, we managed to compare him by association to both Sir Bobby Robson and Martin Luther King uh, tonight, uh, which still won't be enough if he wins England Euro 2020, but probably means our work for this evening is done. Although I would just like to mention that Italy-England third-fourth playoff in Italia 90, was it? the scene of the worst offside decision in the history of football. Do you remember this? Right at the end of the game, Nicola Berti goes through and with an absolutely thumping header, puts Italy 3-1 up. And the linesman either has cramp or something, but he puts his arm up with the, with the flag and the goal is ruled out. And this, this was the Dark Ages, uh, listener, before VAR. And you watch the replay, Berti comes from about 20 yards away and the, when the <laughs> ball is passed, he's still got three or four defenders to clear. Anyway... Anyway, it's just always been a bit of an issue, that. Uh, never mind, never mind. It was the third, fourth playoff. Uh, Adam and Daniel, thank you so much for being with us this evening. And James Horncastle earlier on from Wembley. As mentioned, listener will be back on Thursday morning with a full report on what happens between England and Denmark. So if you can't w- find your way to a television or anything, we'll have all the details for you Thursday morning. Splendid. Friday, there's a preview show of the final. And then Sunday, well, it's the final. So loads to listen to here on Totally at the Euros. For now, though, 
from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen and free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Keep up to date with everything Totally at The Totally Show on Twitter and find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.